0: Good morning, my friends. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter two. Matthew chapter two. In just a moment, we're going to read verses one through twelve for you here in the room and also watching online. We are thrilled that you're with us this morning. I know Matt already mentioned it at the beginning of the service, but I want to remind you again that tonight we have our Christmas at First Baptist that's going to be taking place up in the sanctuary. So that will be this evening. It's going to be an incredible time. And then a reminder to you that on Christmas Eve we are going to have one service at five o'clock in our sanctuary. So you will want to get here early on Christmas Eve, because that is going to be a full house. It's going to be an amazing service, and we are thrilled to share candlelight and communion together on one of our most sacred days. And so today we're actually going to wrap up a series we've been in for a month now, where we've been looking at the Christmas story through the gospel of Matthew. Matthew, one of the four accounts of Jesus' life, and and in fact, one of the two Christmas stories. And so I want to jump right into the story. We actually read the same text last week, but we're going to continue on in it. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And if you don't have your Bibles, uh, no worries. Just follow along as I read to us now. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, at the time when Herod was king, some wise and learned men came to Jerusalem from the east. Where's the one, they asked, who has been born to be king of the Jews? We've seen his star rising in the east, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was very disturbed, and the whole of Jerusalem was as well. He called together all the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquired from them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, that's what it says in the prophet. You, Bethlehem, in Judah's land, are not the least of Judah's princes, for out of you will come the ruler who will shepherd Israel, my people. And then Herod called the wise men to him in secret. He found out from them precisely when the star had appeared, and then he sent them to Bethlehem. Off you go, he said, and make a thorough search for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I can come and worship him too. When they heard what the king said, they set off. There was the star, the one they had seen rising in the east, going ahead of them. It went and it stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were beside themselves with joy and excitement. They went into the house and they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. They opened their treasure chests and gave him presents, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they returned to their own country by a different route. All right, guys, we are now firmly in the midst of Christmas preparation. It even feels like Christmas outside this morning, does it not? It's nice. And so what I want to do is I want to engage in a little bit of Christmas trivia this morning, okay? And you have an opportunity to respond back to me. Let me see how sharp you are on your Christmas skill. First question is this. If you take the cumulative number of gifts that are given in the 12 days of Christmas, so on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me, that's one. On the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. And then it goes on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. So that's three. So three plus four. You add everything up across the board. My question to you, Christmas aficionados, how many gifts are given throughout the whole of that song? Any idea? Look at you, girl, 364 gifts that are given throughout the 12 days of Christmas. That's good. Okay, we're going to go to a second one. This one's a little more of a brain buster, okay? St. Nicholas is actually a bishop from early on in the church. We celebrate Santa Claus now, but his uh, origin story is St. Nicholas, who's living around 400 A.D. in the church. So Christmas aficionados, where was St. Nicholas living? Any idea? Uh, The North Pole. Incorrect. Okay, that's good. Good, good try. That's what Sarah said. The North Pole is not correct. He was living in Turkey, in modern-day Turkey. How about that? So you can go out and share some Christmas knowledge. Now, the third is a little more applicable to our story for today, and it is, in fact, a two-part question. Two-part question. And the first part of the question is this. How many wise men were present at the birth of Jesus? Zero, Good job, guys. There were actually no wise men who were there at the actual birth of Jesus. Now the second part of the question may be a little more difficult. How many wise men came from the East to visit the baby who was born in Bethlehem? How many wise men came from the East? Anybody? Three. Three, Three is a good answer, Clara, but I hate to inform you, my dear child, that you are wrong. I know. See, we tend to think it is three because of gold and frankincense and myrrh, the three gifts that are given. We we tend to think that it is three because of the song, we three kings of orientar, bearing gifts we travel afar. But in fact, the biblical story does not say three. Here is what the biblical story says. Some wise and learned men came to Jerusalem from the east. So we, in fact, have no idea how many people were there. It was not three, maybe it was, we just don't know. And in fact, I don't think it matters how many people were there in the story. But I do wanna spend a little time this morning talking about these wise men and the way that they approached and they came to Jesus. Because I think by looking at the story in Matthew's gospel, we can learn something about how 2,000 years later, we are called to approach Jesus. Not just as a baby who was born in a manger in Bethlehem, but I believe by looking at the story of these wise men, we can learn about how we are called to approach Jesus, who is the living Lord of all creation right here. And right now, not, and I, if you're anything like me, friends, again, the wise men are, are part of the story of Christmas that we just tend to gloss over. We don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. Right? We we, we traditionally think of them as magi, as magicians. So there's a magical element to the story if you even think of it at all. My only uh, interaction with the with the magician or with the magi from the east growing up, because you got to remember, I did not grow up going to church, and so when I heard the Christmas story, the prime way that I heard it as a kid was from the California Raisins Christmas Special. Anybody else know that California Raisins Christmas Special? Sweet Lord, guys, you got to do yourselves a favor. Go home on this cold day, YouTube California Raisins Christmas Special, and you will hear the greatest version of We Three Kings that has ever been produced, okay? It's done in claymation. And the three kings are there, and they are singing. But if you want to take it to the next level, the camels join in the songs as well. And it is jazzy, and it is good. And that's what I learned about the three kings. And guys, what what you obviously know is that isn't the biblical story. Because in fact, when we read through the biblical story of these magi who come from the east, there is an added element uh, of wonder in it. There's an added element of seriousness because these magi that come in from the east, they're not just magicians who are coming in to do parlor tricks. But in the ancient world, when there was a new king who was to be born, it was commonplace, particularly in the ancient Near East for delegations to be sent from other countries to recognize that a new king had been born, to recognize that there was a new authority that was there across the land. And when we read this story in Matthew's gospel, it isn't just these three claymation guys coming in to sing some songs, but in fact, the wise men, and this is important for us to understand, the wise men were foreign emissaries. They were foreign political emissaries who were sent to bring gifts to a new king because there was a new authority that had arrived. And these wise men show up on behalf of the other nations. And there's some background and history to it that we'll get to in just a few minutes. But this is serious business because what we are hearing is that there is a new king who has arrived in Jerusalem. There's a new king who has arrived for the nation of Israel. And these magi are showing up to celebrate him. And what we know some 2,000 years later is that we are celebrating not just the King of Israel, but as we go throughout this season of Christmas, we are celebrating the King over all creation. The one who we believe right now is seated at the right hand of God, ruling over all things. And what I want to do this morning, friends, is I want to look in particular at how the Magi act when they encounter Jesus. What is really fascinating to me, if you, if you uh, have ever done any research into the Christmas story, there are lots of books that try to prove the historicity of the Christmas story. So there are a, a number of books written. Tim Keller has written one really good. Uh, I think there's like The Case for Christ. That guy's written one. And, and a lot of ink has been spilled about the star that is in the sky and how, the, and how these wise men followed the star to get where they were. And some people think it was Jupiter, and people have tried to go back and date what are the movements of the stars. And ultimately, friends, hey, listen, I, I want to be clear on you with you. I don't think that matters. I do not think we can historically prove what was happening astrologically in the time when those wise men came to visit Jesus. And what I also want to suggest to you or tell you this morning is that that really isn't the most important thing. What I want us to do this morning, just for the next few minutes, is I want to look at what happens when those wise men arrive from the east, when they enter into the house and and see the manger for themselves. What do they do when they encounter Jesus, because what they do when they encounter Jesus, I believe, has the uh, ability to shape how we are going to approach Jesus. Because guys, listen, we are in the midst of this Christmas season, and for better or for worse, what we have done as a culture is we have domesticated the baby. We've domesticated Jesus. And what we have done is we've turned him into this sweet little child in a manger. And we picture Mary holding him. And you've seen that picture with Joseph looking over the shoulder. And it's all beautiful and it's wonderful and it's nice. And we sing songs, oh, come let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. And in its original sense, the word adore is adoration, and it means to worship and to celebrate. But what we have done is we've turned this story into, look at this adorable little baby. He is cute, and he is sweet, and we can give presents in honor of him, and all is fine and dandy. But please understand, friends... The real impact of the Christmas story is so much bigger than that. And by looking at what these wise men do, I believe, friends, we can get a better vantage point on how what we ought to do when we encounter Jesus. Because they walk into the room where Jesus was. And the story says that as soon as they see him, what is the first thing that they do? They drop down on their knees, and the word that is used very intentionally, the word that is used of these wise men is they worshiped. The Greek word is proskenesis, and it means this, a practice that involves the act of bowing in submission, bowing in submission to a ruler or to an emperor. Friends, do not forget that in the time of Jesus, there was an emperor, and his name was Caesar. He was celebrated as the living God. It was printed on their coinage. It was printed on imperial propaganda. There was a, there was a, a ruler. There was an emperor, and his name was Caesar. And in this incredible moment in the story of Matthew's gospel, these wise men, these political figures show up and they recognize immediately that there is a greater authority. They recognize immediately that there is someone that is more significant than anything they had ever experienced before. And they didn't just give their gifts when they arrived on the scene, but the gut reaction of their heart was to fall down on their knees, and the word is intentional, to proskinesis Jesus, to worship him, to put him in a position of ultimate value above and beyond everything else. Friends, they had never seen this child before, but when they enter into the presence of what is the living God Their heart's first inclination is to fall down and to worship. And when I read through the biblical story, right, when I I read through beginning in Genesis and all the way through to the book of Revelation, there's actually a common thread. There's something that if we are paying attention, we will notice as we go throughout the biblical story. Seriously, go, go all the way back to Genesis, And the first major figure in the Bible is not Adam and Eve, but the first true major figure in the Bible is a man named Abraham. And Abraham is called by God to go out into the world, and he's going to have a family that will be as uh, numerous as the stars in the sky. And the promise of God to Abraham is that through Abraham and his people, the world will be blessed. And in Genesis chapter 17, when Abraham encounters God for one of the first times, what happens? The story says that he falls down on his face and he worships God. The common thread all throughout the biblical story. Abraham falls down and he worships God. Ezekiel, one of the prophets of Israel, When he receives a vision from God of his beauty and his grandeur, the first thing that Ezekiel does is he falls down on his knees and he worships at God's throne. And it's not just in the Old Testament. Go all the way into the New Testament as well. And in Matthew's Gospel, the story we're reading from now, in Matthew chapter 17, there's a story where Jesus takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up on a mountaintop. And on the top of this mountain, the story says that Jesus is transformed before their eyes. And he goes from wearing street clothes like me and like you, well, maybe not like me and you, but wearing street clothes. And all of a sudden, he is dazzling in white, and the voice of God speaks from the heavens. And in that story, what is the gut inclination of those three men's hearts? It is to fall down and to worship. Go all the way to the end of the Bible. Yes, it begins with worship in Genesis and in Revelation, the final book of our story. We read that when a new heaven and a new earth come together, what will there be across all of creation? But there will be steadfast, beautiful worship where we fall down at the feet of God and we recognize He is the source of ultimate authority. He is the source of ultimate worth in our lives. And when the wise men walk into that space and they encounter this child, just a child who was born in a manger, the first inclination of their hearts is to fall down and worship him. If you cannot begin to grasp this, let me lay it out quite simply for you. That when people encounter God, the first reaction of their hearts is to worship. When people truly encounter God, the first reaction of their heart is to worship. Now listen, I know some of you are here right now. You've been following Jesus all of your life. And when I use the word worship, what you tend to think about is something that we do on Sunday morning. We get to sing nice Christmas songs. We get to hear a wonderful choir, by the way. Let's give it up for that choir real quick. I hope you were cheering at home watching online. And we tend to think, as those of us who've been following Jesus for a while, we tend to think about worship as something that you do on Sunday morning. Or or some of you, maybe you're here in the room or you're watching online and and you haven't done the church thing for a long time. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. And when I use the word worship, you immediately think, oh, that's a religious word, that's a churchy word. I don't really want to have anything to do with that. That doesn't apply to me. And if that's where you're at, hey, I get it. I get why you might have walked away from the church. But what I want you to know this morning is that when we see worship in the Bible, when we talk about worship in this space, we are fundamentally not talking about something that we do only on Sunday morning. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that when we talk about worship, When we talk about what the wise men did when they encountered Jesus, we are talking about the fundamental orientation of our hearts. See, what I want to suggest to you this morning, friends, is that each and every one of us, we are hardwired to worship something inside of each and every one of us, we hold something as most valuable and most important in our lives. What is the thing that you love above and beyond anything else? What is the thing that you cannot imagine your life without? And friends, what I want to tell you this morning is that that is in fact a definition of what you worship. One of my favorite writers of all time is a man named David Foster Wallace. If you're not familiar with David Foster Wallace, he, he has written a ton of novels, but also some nonfiction work. If you're looking for a great Christmas gift to give somebody that just loves to dive into the deep end of the pool, David Foster Wallace, uh, his book of essays, Consider the Lobster, really, really great stuff. One of the defining authors and, and thinkers of our, my generation. And in 2005, David Foster Wallace went to Kenyon College. And he gave a commencement address at Kenyon College. And friends, commencement addresses are by and large rubbish. But this 2005 commencement address from David Foster Wallace, I want to say to you this morning, is one of the most important things that you could ever go and listen to. It's about 15 minutes long. And I'm not going to read to you the whole thing. But I do want to read to you one little section Because David Foster Wallace, who, by the way, is an atheist, was, tragically, he died. But David Foster Wallace was an atheist, but he also understood the realities of our existence. And let me just read to you what Foster Wallace has to say to these graduates of Kenyon College. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in your life, then you'll never have enough or you'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a thousand deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff to be true. It's codified as myths and proverbs, bromides and parables, the skeleton of every great story. But the trick, the trick, David Foster Wallace says, is to keep this truth up front in our daily consciousness. That first line that he said, it is so important, I want you to see it in the day-to-day trenches of adult life. There is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And the only choice we really have is what we will worship. The only choice we really have is what we will worship because there is no such thing as not worshiping. And when those wise men enter into that room from the east, they encountered something that fundamentally altered the state of their hearts. They went in to give gifts, but instead they ended up first and foremost worshiping because they recognized the ultimate authority in their lives. So the question is, The question for each and every one of us ultimately really is simply this: what do you worship? What do you worship? Because, as Foster Wallace says, if you worship money, you're never gonna feel like you have enough. If you worship your intelligence later on, he says that you will live in a constant fear of being found out you're a fraud. If you worship your children, one day they leave the nest and you are completely alone. What is it that you worship? And that great Saint Augustine says, our hearts are restless, God, until we find our rest in you. And those wise men walked in and their first inclination was to worship that child in a manger. What do you worship? And if you want to know the answer to that question, if you want to know the answer to the question, what do you worship? We need to go back to that story. Because what happens is after these wise men bow down and they fall at the feet of the king, the next thing they do is they stand up and they open their treasure chest. And they pull out, you could probably name it, gold and frankincense and myrrh, which for us in 2022 is an absolutely weird thing to give as a gift. But in ancient context, friends, there's actually something going on. All the way back in the book of Isaiah one of the prophets of the Old Testament. There is a dream that Isaiah has that one day God will come back to Israel, that one day God's presence and his wonder and his beauty will flood the earth. And in Isaiah chapter 60, there is a dream of the prophet that when God renews and redeems and recreates all things, the nations of the world will flood to the temple in Jerusalem. And what does Isaiah chapter 60 verse 6 say? But they will bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. And these men offer these ultimate gifts of value because the prophecy of Isaiah has been fulfilled. These men offer their ultimate gifts of worth because God has returned as he always promised he would. See, friends, their heart was geared to worshiping Jesus, and so they gave him the gifts that were of immeasurable value. If you want to know what you worship— If you want to know what you worship, it's actually not that hard to figure out, okay? You ready? If you want to know what you worship, here's the question that you need to ask yourself. What do you do with the things of greatest value in your life? What do you do with the things of greatest value in your life? What do you do with your time? What do you do with the time that you have? Because it is brief and it is fleeting, my friends, And what you do with your time says a lot about what it is that you hold as of ultimate significance in your life. What do you do with your money? One of my mentors told me once, the most theological document that you own is, in fact, your checkbook. And if you're under 50, it's your online banking account. If you want to know what you worship, what you hold as ultimate value, what do you do with the things that you hold dear In your own life. Friends, this is the challenge for each and every one of us because these wise men have a lesson to teach us. Jesus just doesn't want our songs on Christmas Day, Jesus doesn't want us to just show up on Sunday morning, but Jesus wants the whole of our lives. Jesus says, I want your greatest gift, which is your heart. And so ultimately, friends, I mean this. There are so many idols as we go throughout our days. And there are so many things that are vying for our hearts. And the sad reality is, I imagine almost all of us in this room are giving in to the idols in our lives at some level. So I challenge you, I really do, I mean it. Go home this afternoon and ask yourself the question, what do you do with the things of greatest value in your life? Because when you can answer that question honestly and earnestly, you will know what it is that you worship. And if it is anything other than Jesus, friends, you have work to do because we are now winding up this season of Advent. And at one level, the season of Advent is about the coming of Christ at Christmas. And so we can sing joy to the world and we can sing, uh, oh, come all ye faithful. And we can sing all these Christmas songs and it's good. But friends, hear me loud and clear. The hope of Advent is not just about the king who came on Christmas Day, but the greatest hope of Advent is the hope that Christ will come again. It is the hope that he will return in glory. And when that day arrives, friends, he will restore and he will redeem and he will recreate all things and it will be a good and beautiful day. And in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi in the second chapter, there's this incredible moment where he says that Christ, who did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, chose to take on flesh and come among us. He came to die an obedient death, even death on a cross. And then he hits this moment, y'all, that is so important. And he says that right now Christ is ruling over all things. And in Philippians chapter 2, here's what Paul has to say. But the day will come. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, if I could translate, everyone will worship at the feet of Jesus Christ. And so friends, we are living in this time where we are called to orient our hearts in light of the day that is coming. So that we might worship now in preparation of what is coming in a later day. So friends, I really want to challenge you to ask the question, What do you worship? What do you do with the things of greatest value in your life? And with that on your heart, with that on your mind, let's take a few moments now and prepare for God to speak to us. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful. We are grateful for this time. We are grateful for this moment. And God, we are grateful for these wise men. Who, who came, God, as political emissaries to welcome a, a new king into Israel. But, God, when they encountered you, their lives were changed. When they encountered this child in a manger, God, their hearts poured out from within them, and they fell down and they worshiped. They recognized you as ultimate. And, God, we need to learn from them this morning because we all worship something, God, we all hold something as ultimate in our lives. And God, this morning, I want to challenge us because I know and we know that we live in a culture of idols and of false gods, that we give our hearts to so many other things. And as Foster Wallace said, God, some of us give it to money, others give it to success. But God, whatever it is, help us to know that it isn't worth the ultimate gift of our life. So God, as these wise men came and they worshiped you and they gave their greatest gifts, for those of us who are here in this space today, for those of us who are watching online, God, God, would you challenge our hearts? Would you begin to plant a seed in our minds so that we might answer the question honestly and earnestly, what we hold dear in our lives? What do we hold as ultimate value? And God, today, my prayer for each one of my friends who is here in this room, is that the answer to that question might be Jesus. God, may we worship you well today in hope of the time when we will worship you for all eternity. God, be with us now as we continue to do just that. This is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.